So this is probably even bigger than the other three, large scale, this is the most predominant thing. We, we just tell a story that drugs are bad and it's not true and it's harmful for so many reasons. So think about this. And, and this is some of, you alluded to Carl Hart's book that we had talked about before getting on the air. Um, yeah. It's called Drug Use for Grownups. And this yeah. is some of what um, Carl Hart talks about in his book. But we have this idea that um, the drugs are bad <laughs> and, and yet, and particularly with methamphetamine and heroin, and yet those are both substances that we use clinically, therapeutically on a daily basis. So for instance, we use methamphetamine, not just stimulants like meth, we use actual methamphetamine to treat ADHD yeah. in as young as adolescents. That was my guest on today's show, Alex Ellswick. He's co-founder of Voices of Hope, a recovery community. And today we're going to dive into myths about addiction treatment and other myths about drug use. Uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Relationships and You, hosted by Toby Jenkins, a licensed marriage and family therapist serving Central Kentucky. Each week, Toby will bring you a show with a topic related to mental health, relationships, or self-improvement. The name of the show, Paradigm, comes from that moment in the therapy process when a profound shift in perspective happens for a client. An epiphany, sometimes accompanied by physical reaction that leads them to look at things differently and make significant steps towards improving and enriching their lives. You are listening to Paradigm, Insights into Relationships and You. I'm your host, Toby Jenkins, and today I'm honored to have back on the show again, uh, Alex Ellswick. Um, just for uh, sentimental, sentimental reasons, uh, Alex was the first person I ever interviewed in my very first episode. And, um, you know, at that time, uh, Alex was a student, but, um, you know, for if you want to hear his full story, which we'll get into some of it, but if you want to uh, hear his full story, uh, his path into addiction, into recovery, and now as a um, as a co-founder of Voices of Hope and a uh, an advocate and actively working in recovery, you can go back uh, and listen to that. Um, you can go back to my show's website, ParadigmRadioShow.com. It's the very first episode. Um, I am still blown away and blown away by your path, Alex, and um, the work that you are doing in Central Kentucky. And so um, welcome back to the show. Um, and I guess maybe for, maybe just give a little bit about your background and uh, where you uh, where you were um, and how you got to where you are today and the work you're doing. Yeah, that sounds great. Thank you for having me again, Toby. This is always a lot of fun for me um, to, get to, to, to get to talk about these things. It's just my passion and I love it. Um, so yeah, my name is Alex Ellswick. I am currently an assistant extension professor uh, for substance use prevention and recovery at the University of Kentucky. It's a really long title. It takes a while to get out. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as you mentioned, I'm a co-founder of Voices of Hope, which is a recovery community organization in central Kentucky. And we'll talk uh, more later on about kind of what that means and what that looks like. Um, but yeah, just briefly, my, my experience. I grew up really um, in a pretty ideal situation, uh, very privileged, like very immensely privileged. My, uh, I'm for, for, because we don't have video for those who can't see me, I'm a, I'm a cisgender straight white guy. I came from the suburbs, um, definitely a suburban kid. I went to a private school up until um, ninth grade or eighth grade. Um, and, and had everything I needed. And that, even though that's true, I also was a person who had a lot of addiction in my family and mental illness and et cetera. And so I ended up um, getting addicted to prescription pain pills when I was 18 years old and um, then getting addicted to heroin after that and uh, going to jail, going in and out of treatment centers, experiencing homelessness and ended up getting starting my recovery at a homeless shelter in Dayton, and that was um, seven and a half years ago. Yeah, so from seven and a half years ago to now having earned your PhD is, is, is a remarkable journey, absolutely remarkable. Um, so, you know, I, I want to pluck your brain today about um, first, um, you know, new insight into addiction treatment. Uh, you know, before we came on, um, you know, as a marriage and family therapist, I don't do, um, there, there, there's, a, there's a role for marriage and family therapy in addiction recovery. So, so just kind of for perspective, I often do couples therapy to supplement addiction uh, work that the person in recovery is doing. And so, um, so I like to kind of put it this way, that um, if I can help smooth out uh, anything that, that, may, that may, might be triggering in a relationship that may uh, cause the urge to want to use, then that's the role of couples therapy. And also understanding how to activate the various mechanisms of support in, through the relationships that the person in recovery has. So, um, so recovery itself, um, I, I would say, and you can probably, you probably know, or could probably add a lot to this and add, um, know a lot more about it, but uh, one mode of treatment um, is often successful, but the, it takes multifaceted approach to really uh, uh, help uh, recovery be solid. <clears throat> um, but like just this week, um, this topic came up multiple times in therapy sessions, uh, whether it was one client of mine who just lost a classmate to addiction or, um, you know, helping a uh, client uh, work through, like you mentioned earlier, Alex, um, maybe we could talk about this too, but you often see in family histories, um, generational uh, addictions, and it's not always to the same thing, but um, kind of like, uh, just kind of talk about um, the role of generational addiction um, in families. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit complicated because it's a bit of a biopsychosocial thing. So the, the strongest um, predictor of whether or not a person will become addicted is genetics. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a strong heritability to um, not necessarily an addiction gene so much as like a constellation of genes that predispose somebody for addiction. Um, so for instance, in my family, my mom had seven uncles and four of them were addicted to drugs and alcohol. So an immense amount of addiction in my family, plus a ton of mental illness. 
anxiety and depression and bipolar. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's that element. And then the other, there's like a sort of a, a parallel piece, which is just the environmental impact of growing up in a home where your parents are addicted. And as best we can tell, when you control for genetics, so when you set aside the genetics and just try to isolate what is the impact of growing up in an addicted home, those kids are eight times more likely than the average kid to become addicted. So then combine that with the genetic risk and you know, it's, it's a bad situation. Yeah, yeah. The, the other indicator that I also uh, rely on quite a bit is the uh, exposure to adverse childhood experiences. It's called ACEs. And uh, you, can, you can Google that and actually take the survey yourself. But um, out of like the 10 significant adverse childhood experiences, there's a strong correlation between having exposure to poor and developing uh, addictions as an adult. Um, so, I mean, there, there are a lot of tools and there are a lot of things, a lot of ways to look at it. And, um, but yeah, that generational piece is pretty and genetic and generational and um, is very interesting. I, I heard um, it was uh, Judith Landau who does uh, like community level disaster therapy. Um, I heard her give a talk and based on her own research, um, she um, analyzed uh, addiction patterns in immigrant uh, communities. And one of the things she, that she discovered was that um, when, when immigrants come, mo- not only to the United States, but other places, uh, they're generally in a, in a position where they're isolated. They are working and sending money back, back to their home country to support their family. And in this isolation, addiction uh, or substance abuse uh, tend, has a high likelihood of happening. And the thing that kind of struck me was that um, she, based on her research, she's found that um, it will, it takes five generations to work itself out. And you get this like every other generation effect where essentially, you know, say the great grandparents, uh, then the next generation is repulsed by the addiction. But then there's like this collusion between uh, every other generation. And so, um, it's still a very, very complex phenomenon. I think we're, and we're gonna dive into even more stuff we know about it uh, today in terms of treatment um, and it's prevalent. So, so yeah, so, um, so yeah, there's a lot to addiction. It's very prevalent today um, and uh, it affects, um, we'll probably get into the numbers, but um, it, I can't, I mean, it affects just about everybody in some way, one form or fashion. Um, so, um, so can you talk us through, um, so you're co-founder of Voices of Hope. Uh, this, your organization is a nonprofit, serves uh, Central Kentucky. And so um, how does this, how does your organization uh, approach addiction and addiction recovery? Yeah, that's a great question. So first it's helpful to understand kind of um, what, what we mean by a recovery community organization, because that's distinct from a treatment center. Um, we don't provide uh, treatment services. We don't hire clinicians or professionals. All of our staff, we have about 20, 25 staff are all in recovery or 90, 90% of them are in recovery themselves. So they're, it's a peer to peer center. Um, and we're community-based resources. We kind of consider ourselves the hub for recovery resources in central Kentucky. So um, we have lots of meetings every week and it's part of our core philosophy, one of our core values that we 
value all pathways to recovery. And sort of in accordance with that, we host meetings, dozens of meetings every week that are applicable to different pathways. And what I mean by different pathways is some people are take an abstinence only approach. And that's like a lot of the 12 step programs you'll be familiar with, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, all the A's. Um, but then you have, for instance, uh, kind of the gold standard for treating opioid addiction, like heroin addiction today is using medication for opioid use disorder, like methadone or suboxone. So you have folks who take medications. So we have meetings specifically for them. Some people, their journey into recovery is faith-based um, through their, their Christian faith or even Jewish or Muslim faith. And so there are meetings specifically for those folks. Um, even Buddhist, Buddhist approach, mindfulness-based stress reduction. There's a, a meeting called Recovery Dharma. Um, and then lastly, not lastly, there are many more, but another one I would mention is called Harm Reduction Works. And it's my favorite that we host because it's a harm reduction focused meeting. So it's not a, necessarily about abstinence. It may be for some people, but for everyone, it's about um, learning how to be safer and healthier. That, that's, a, that's a lot of uh, ways to look at, a, um, look at recovery. So we're up against a break, but um, you know, you said something kind of interesting that um, about, you know, there's no one path. Um, so abstinence, I'd like to dive into a little bit more. And then um, seeing, like you mentioned the gold standard in terms of like Suboxone and some of the other medications. So uh, when we come back from the break, um, I want to talk more about abstinence, which is abstaining from using. And, um, you know, there's some other models from around the world where it, it's, the focus is more on decriminalizing and uh, using safely. And kind of talk about the pros and cons uh, of those kind of approaches. Uh, so we're we going to break. Uh, my guest today is Alex Ellswick, and we are talking about uh, addiction recovery and myths about addiction recovery. So we'll be right back. This is Toby Jenkins, founder of Jenkins Couples and Family Therapy and host of Paradigm, Insights into Relationships and You. Jenkins Couples and Family Therapy is a proud sponsor and supporter of Paradigm, Insights into Relationships and You. At Jenkins Couples and Family Therapy, we work with couples, families, and individuals walking with you through life's challenges and transitions. You can find out more about Jenkins Couples and Family Therapy and request an appointment through telehealth or in person at www.jenkinscft.com or by calling 859-806-0093. Uh, we are back. Uh, you're listening to Paradigm, Insights into Relationships and You. I'm your host, Toby Jenkins, and today I am... Uh, Pleased to have Alex Ellswick, and we're talking addiction and addiction recovery. By the way, uh, just like everyone else during COVID, uh, we are working from home, and we both have uh, dogs. So, you, <laughs> I see my dog right now. You may hear Alex's dogs. Um, all of us have learned how to adjust to uh, working from home. So, uh, so yes, yeah, so you may hear a jingle or a bark here and there, but it's all good. Um, so, you know, before the break, you were describing the multitude of approaches that Voices of Hope uses uh, in addiction recovery. And so um, is it fair to say, and you know, this may be distorted because you, I work <laughs> with therapy and this kind of stuff all the time, but you mentioned the gold standard being medication. So what are the, uh, how does that work for recovery? 
Yeah, medication is, interestingly enough, a controversial topic when it comes to addiction. And, and it's funny because to a, a complete outsider who isn't familiar, it's, it's kind of perplexing why a medication that's apparently so effective would be controversial. But um, it, it stems from the belief that a lot of people have, which is one of these myths we can, we can explore a little bit more later on, that in order to be actually in recovery, truly in recovery, that a person needs to be completely abstinent from what the phrase we hear a lot is all mind and mood altering substances. Mm -hmm. And so most people extend this to from illicit drugs to prescription drugs, to alcohol, marijuana. Um, and so, so they look at the use of medications to treat addiction as substitution or replacement therapies. And mm -hmm. if you, if you understand the pharmacokinetics and the pharmacology of these substances, which I only understand partly, they're really complicated, but when you understand how they're working, you understand this is not about getting people high. It really is a therapeutic dose um, that's helping to reduce cravings and it reduces uh, criminal offenses. It reduces hospitalizations. It reduces the cost to society. It's a tremendous return on investment. It's also the only treatment that research has shown to reduce your risk of dying from overdose. Okay. And wow. At a time when, as you mentioned, we have folks we're working with who are losing loved ones, when we're in the middle of an overdose crisis, that should be a medication that we all are very interested in, right? Mm -hmm. But the controversy, again, comes from the idea that, well, if you're using a medication, it's a quote unquote crutch and yep. you're not really in recovery. Yeah. Um, so I actually experienced this in couples therapy. Um, the uh, husband was using uh, Suboxone. Mm -hmm. And from my understanding, it's a, in, in the managed process, it's a gradual step down in, uh, in dosage. But it's kind of like you, so as the, on his end, he doesn't, he doesn't know when he's taking placebo or not. Um, yeah. But, you know, going back to the importance of, of uh, you know, of couples therapy, his wife was very, uh, was very against him taking Suboxone and took and had the same attitude you just talked about, where we've just replaced one drug with another. And so it became really important and to kind of turn, turn, and we'll talk, probably talk more about some of the, uh, some of the damaging things that happen in, that happens in relationships with people in recovery. Mm -hmm. But um, she was very against it, uh, very fearful that this would just lead to another addiction. And um, this also led to his anxiety. So she went as far as uh, like monitoring, monitoring his pills. She randomly, uh, request that he uh, do one of those over-the-counter uh, drug tests. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, so not only is it controversial, you know, in the public realm, it's also it can be uh, controversial among loved ones. Um, <clears throat> but highly, you know, highly effective, like you said. And Suboxone isn't the only one, right? Aren't, aren't there some other medications that are used? Um, yeah. So generally the three that get named, the FDA approved medications, and these are specifically for opioid use disorder. So that's heroin, um, prescription pain pills like Oxycontin, Vicodin, things like that. Um, so the, 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 the three approved medications for those would be buprenorphine, which is the main active drug in Suboxone. Um, Suboxone is a complicated one because it's got some of an opioid agonist and some of an antagonist. We don't need to get into that here. It gets kind of complicated, but Suboxone, methadone, which you're probably more familiar with. It's been popular since like the 1970s. And then Vivitrol, 
is the trade name. The, the um, drug name is naltrexone. Um, and uh, all, yeah, all three are used um, to, to treat opiate addiction. Okay. But, it, but it, the example you bring up with the couple is actually truly a phenomenal, like if I was looking for a case study to teach addiction and, and, and marriage and family therapy, this would be such a good case to offer because, um, <laughs> you know, if, if he had, if your client had cancer uh, and he was being prescribed a medication for his cancer, mm -hmm. I, I highly doubt that his partner would have any serious opinion, let alone a critical opinion of what medication he's taking because they would say, well, look, I'm not an oncologist. So no. I'll leave this to the medical professionals, but it's only an addiction, this weird, black box stigmatized space where we go, everyone has an opinion, everyone thinks they know what people need. Um, and I don't say that to be critical of her. I think we, we're all guilty of that at times, but, but it's a great example of how you, you gotta do some psychoeducation to bring her understanding of the value of medication along and then see, and also recognize why those fears exist for her, that it looks like a continued addiction and all that. It's just, that's a, that's a, great, that's a great example. Oh, it, I've, I've, you know, I often say this, but I, uh, I learn a lot from the clients I work with. And um, one of the things that's really fascinating, and actually one of the things I always look for when, um, when I'm working with uh, couples in particular um, is um, we tend to get into relationships that we have, I would say, a subconscious comfort with, and it can sometimes look dysfunctional. So like in this situation, um, this, uh, the, the wife uh, grew up in a household where her other siblings were yes. all in some form of addiction and recovery. And so yes. who does she end up marrying? Someone who's in the middle of addiction. And so, and so like there was this turmoil going on with her, like how can I fall in love with someone who, who, who is using and an addict? And you know, we'll talk about language too, because language was very important in terms of how she used language. And so subconsciously she knew exactly what buttons to push. Um, especially when her anxiety was high. So from her standpoint, she lived under heightened anxiety that any given day, her husband could relapse. And so she tried really, really hard to put a lot of things in place to control as much of that as she could. And kind of, and what it did for him was just made it more uh, triggering. And yes. So more she clamped down on his whereabouts, what he's doing, uh, tracking where he is on his phone, the more he felt like the urge to use. And so part of the role of couples therapy was to, to you know, break that cycle and create healthy interactions and supportive interactions for both of them. And so we want to lower her anxiety and accept the fact there's a lot of this she has, she can't control and she can't really yes. herself from, um, but then create positive interactions between the two of them so that he doesn't feel stressed out from his interaction with her to want to use. And so um, she was, she's in the beginning, she's adamantly against uh, Suboxone um, because she feels like, well, now he's going to be on this forever. Um, and so, so yeah, so, so that's kind of the role and what I learned from them in, in terms of language and interaction. Uh, one of the key terms that we uh, we stopped using was addict. So anytime she got frustrated with him, she would say something along the lines of, well, you're just an addict. And so, um, and that's, that language is really, really destructive in a relationship. She's labeling his character. 
Um, and kind of closing off the fact that, uh, you know, he's working really, really hard for her and the family uh, to stay uh, to stay sober um, and, and not relapse. So that language can be extremely uh, powerful in a negative way, in the same way that uh, there, there, there's more, there are better uses of language. Like when we think of like assault, um, we turn we turn language from being a victim to survival, to survivor, which also that language is very important in terms of how you look at the assault. Um, so you all, you mentioned uh, abstinence, which I had another guest on the show, um, Aaron Solomon, who works with eating disorders. And mm -hmm. she, she said something to me that I guess is obvious, but the way she said it, and when she said it, I was like, oh my gosh, that's so true. And so um, her point was with eating disorders, and I've thought about this for other things in therapy, that um, someone with an eating disorder, they're Abstinence is not an option. Um, I also think about this with uh, people I work with, uh, with sexual addictions, where abstinence may not be an option. So, you know, her, her analogy is someone who has an eating disorder, you can't tell them, well, you can't eat food. You're going to have to eat food because you need food for survival. So how do we have, how do we develop healthy uh, eating behaviors and habits? So um, how, does that work the same with uh, recovery and addiction? Yeah, that's it's this sort of strange application of the 12 step model to these behavioral addictions or process addictions. So let's do this. Let's take let's go ahead and take these three big myths that we want to talk about about addiction. And as a part of talking about one of those myths, we'll kind of address the, the eating disorder in that application. Is that OK? That sounds good. But wait, before we do that, we're going to take one quick break. Uh, okay. for a quick commercial break uh, for One Minute Insight. Um, you're listening to Paradigm, Insights into Relationships and You. We're talking addiction and recovery with Alex Elzer. We'll be right back. into relationships and you and this is one minute insight one of the other jobs i have which i really enjoy is being a college professor and i teach human sexuality i'm really fascinated in particular by a lot of the research around child development as it pertains to sexuality and there's one key aspect that i've really honed into that overlaps with sexuality and racism in our country and that is what's not said so we know that from a child development standpoint when it comes to sexuality and race what happens at home is very important and conversations and teaching children is very important. But another aspect of that is about is what is not talked about. And when something is not talked about, it becomes unspeakable and shame gets attached to it. So we tend to focus on what we do teach and do talk about, but we also need to pay attention to the things that we won't talk about when it comes to sexuality and race because children as they develop will fill in their own gaps and will associate shame with the things that are not talked about. This is Toby Jenkins, host of Paradigm, Insights into Relationships and You. One of the biggest stresses that we encounter is money. 
Money issues strain our family life, create stress in our relationships, and can provoke serious anxiety and depression. And many don't know where to turn to get relief. That's where The Darius Norman Show comes in. The Darius Norman Show airs daily on WTTA FM 101.2 from 1 to 2 p.m. Darius Norman is a certified credit and financial counselor and author of Rewriting Financial Rules. It's his objective to empower others with educational tools and services to assist them in taking control of their financial and credit issues. Tune in to The Darius Norman Show on WTTA FM 101.2 and you can follow him on Twitter at The Darius Norman Show. Uh, we're back. Uh, you're listening to Paradigm, Insights into Relationships and You. Uh, before the break, we were talking about uh, some of the big approaches to uh, addiction recovery. And so, um, you know, we, we were going to talk talk about abstinence when it comes to uh, recovery. And uh, when it comes into the addiction world, um, I was actually having this discussion with multiple clients who are working through, I'll say, self-diagnosed sex addiction. And so... Mm-hmm. Uh, the same kind of concept applies in sex addiction. Um, abstinence may not be for everyone, um, but um, because we're sexual beings, and especially if you're in a marriage, then there, there's going to be sex in your relationship. So how do you have healthy sexual behaviors? Um, because abstinence probably wouldn't work in a, in a marriage. So so let's you were you know before the break you you mentioned. Uh, Abstinence is one of the myths. So let's jump into some of those. So there were three big ones. What are they in terms of Yeah, This is a paper uh, I just wrote with a few of my colleagues and we've um, submitted for publication. uh, So fingers crossed, but it's kind of our big um, manifesto. In in my view, I see it that way. It's kind of our manifesto of the whole treatment setup, the whole paradigm radio show, the whole treatment paradigm, as it were. Um, And so there are these three big myths that we tell, we, we, we basically tell a big story about addiction and we, we all buy into it. And when I say all of us, I don't, I mean the general public, I mean medical professionals, I mean addiction treatment professionals, I mean academics, scholars, most everyone. And this story has basically three big elements that aren't really backed by the research. And those three elements are first that you got to hit rock bottom. We hear that a lot. So we'll talk about that. You got to hit rock bottom. Then the second is that you got to go to treatment. And then the third is that then you got to be abstinent for the rest of your life. And that that's somehow a three ingredients in the recipe to recovery. And then if we have time later on, maybe after another break, there's a fourth I want to talk about, just the idea that drugs are bad. So we remember that if we can. It's, it has some good connections to today. But um, okay, so we'll take them one at a time. First, the notion that we have to hit rock bottom. We have this belief that everyone needs to take this hero's journey, this trajectory of getting addicted, losing everything, going to the bottom, because it's only at that place that you're willing to give up the drug or the drink to get better. Mm. There's so much that's wrong with this. I guess the first thing that I would say that is wrong with this is um, that research shows that people are more likely to recover when their needs are being met. And so maybe that's kind of obvious, but like, People are more likely to recover when they have stable housing. People are more likely to recover when they have employment. People are more likely to recover when they have things, when they have relationships, when they have, and yet the whole rock bottom concept is really predicated on taking things away. 
is yeah. predicated on the idea as a family member, I cut you off. So you lose access to a warm shower, a warm bed and a hot meal. And maybe it's that um, recognition that you can't continue to live this way or whatever it is, the despair that'll lead you to that place. Um, and, and I have a question about that because I too have believed that for many different things. And so where's the line between uh, enabling, enabling addiction or enabling poor behavior and just rock bottom. Like you just said, the family may take away things, but let's say yeah. I then continue to let you live in my, for instance, live in my house, eat my food, et cetera. So where's the line there? Yeah, so I will say, I gotta admit as I'm being critical of the system that in, in this case, there isn't a good clear solution. It, it, I've, I've spent a good amount of time with this research on essentially what should be the role of families as their family members are addicted? Do we cut them off? Do we support them? Do we, how do we negotiate that? And the research is really poor. Hmm. Um, there's it, there's a, just a, a dearth, just not a lot of research. But what we generally recommend is that, that there's a difference between supporting and enabling. And it's a fine line and it's yep. totally context dependent. So it may be different for different families in different situations. But the general rule is, are you making it easier or harder for this person to continue to use and making it easier or harder for them to, to recover. Mm -hmm. And so it's, a, it's kind of a helpful rule of thumb, even though it sounds simple, because when you're asking, can I give them a ride? Well, it's kind of, maybe it depends on where the ride is to. Uh, you gonna give them a ride to the dope man? No, that would probably be enabling, but can you give them a ride to a meeting? Maybe, maybe in your situation that's and maybe in your situation, there's not enough trust for you to take a person to a meeting. I mean, maybe that's the case. It's it's case by case basis, but that's generally the recommendation. And and to complicate things even further, I will also say, I do have. I think based on my own um, spiritual beliefs, I do believe in the power of um, de despair and transformative experiences. Like I'm not trying to diminish that, that something real happens there. I think for me, some really hard spiritual kind of work happened when I was at a homeless shelter at the beginning of my recovery. And I don't want to totally uh, diminish that, but I also want to make sure we don't continue to believe the lie that everyone needs to, um, to lose everything. Because imagine the absurdity of saying to a person who's been addicted to heroin for 25 years and they're homeless and they sleep under a bridge on a tarp, which I did as a part of my addiction. Imagine saying to that person, um, you know, when you hit rock bottom, then you'll be ready to recover. When, when you've had enough suffering, then that's when you'll get recovery. And imagine that person looking back at you just with sheer bewilderment. Like, do you not see where I am? Rock yeah. bottom has a trap door and a basement and on and on it goes. So there's just a fundamental absurdity in saying that at some point. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that also ties into, uh, you know, I, I, I talked, I mentioned a little bit decriminalizing um, drug use. And I'm sure we'll probably talk about that too and kind of shifting how we think about it. But yeah, totally. Okay. You, you, uh, you sold me. I'm bought in. Um, that's, that's a myth I'm going to do away with. <laughs> okay. And for what it's worth, just so we make sure we're bringing everybody along, these are things, all of these things are things that I believed as well. They're things I, it's, it's so, you know, I, I, I think until you're exposed to them, why should you think anything different? Um, this is the story that we've been told over and over again since we were young. Yes. Um, so number one, rock bottom. Let's do away with that. 
we, we don't exactly understand how to do away with it, what needs to take its place, what the support needs to look like entirely for families, but we know we need to do away with that. Okay, so number two. The second piece is once you've hit rock bottom and you're willing to do anything and everything, then you need to go to treatment. That's, that's our belief that just people need to go to treatment. We kind of have this sense that everyone gets better in treatment. So let me give you a couple of interesting statistics. First of all, did you know that the majority of people who are in recovery today got into recovery without any formal help whatsoever. So there are like 25, 22 to 25 million Americans in recovery today. And the majority of that group got into recovery without inpatient treatment, without outpatient treatment, without seeing a therapist, without even going to an AA or an NA meeting. We call it natural recovery. Now, how does that get the number of people in treatment? Or is that kind of a hard number to get to? Yeah, it is a slightly harder number to get to. It's, it's um, definitely fewer than half. Um, wow. So a minority of people uh, will recover using a treatment center. It's, mm -hmm. it's split about evenly between people who will. So, so about if we wanted to roughly cut up a pie chart, we would say 50% recover naturally, no formal help. About 25% will recover in a treatment setting. And then yep. another 25% will recover in a therapist's office in an AA meeting in more of a community-based setting. That's so, powerful. Huh. and it's surprising, right? Because I, after my experience of going in and out of treatment centers, you come to believe that treatment is the bastion for hope, that that's where people get better. And so we funnel all of our resources into treatment and it becomes a big problem. And I'll tell you another statistic that, that's interesting. So, um, there were about the same number of people who are addicted currently. So almost 25 million people who have a current active addiction right now. Mm -hmm. And only according to the national survey of drug use and health, um, only 10% of those folks who need treatment will get treatment this year. So that means 90% of the people who need treatment won't be getting treatment services. That's a huge problem, right? We call this the treatment gap. And it's like, if you're writing a grant and you want dollars, you're definitely going to cite that statistic because it's, it's, the, it's the easiest way to beg. We need more treatment beds because 90% of people who need treatment aren't getting it, right? Wow. That fits the story that we're telling. But here's the, here's the hammer. If you do a deeper dive on that data and um, you ask those 90% why they won't receive treatment this year, they'll tell you a, a vast majority of them, according to the survey, because they don't think they need it. Hmm. Okay. And, and, a, and a slightly smaller fraction of them won't get treatment this year because they don't wanna be abstinent. So here we have these two totally competing narratives. A lot of the world is saying, here's a group of people who need treatment but aren't getting it, but nobody asked them. And when you ask them, they say, uh, no, I don't need treatment. I'm good. I don't have I'm a good. Drug use. And so this, oh, we wanted to dissect that group and we say, okay, what's the truth here? There's probably a, a minority of them are people who are experiencing denial or ambivalence. People who probably could really benefit from some serious treatment. They have a severe substance use disorder. They can't admit it, right? Yeah. Um, but the majority of them are just, the, are just telling the truth. They're right. They're correct. The majority of them who we in the, in the, as professionals have said need treatment don't actually need treatment. And part of the reason we know this is because the majority of people who get better don't need treatment. 
right? Yeah. So most people are getting better in, in the community setting, in their homes, in, with their families. They're not, they're not leaving their community setting to go away to a treatment center to get better. And this matters because what we've done is we've gone and funneled all of our dollars to create this huge treatment infrastructure where we just create more and more treatment centers. And yet, uh, most people aren't going there. Most people who, are, who need help uh, need that help in a community-based setting. And so that's what like recover, uh, Voices of Hope and recovery community organizations are all about, serving those people in their home. So, so wait a second, you are using research uh, to actively Whoa. develop uh, recovery tools and approaches. That's great. <laughs> yeah, imagine <You> know, that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's kind of, you know, when uh, people ask me about therapy in general, um, if your therapist is not involved in, you know, up, the up-to-date research um, and using evidence-based approaches, then, um, their efficacy is unlikely to be very good. And so, yeah, there's a definite role for it. And also, you know, with this challenging, uh, kind of the, the, the conventional thinking about it um, is extremely important. Um, finding new ways to uh, help help the recovery community. Before we begin to break, uh, my guest today is Alex Ellswick, and we are talking about uh, addiction recovery and myths about addiction. You've got mail, you've right. got mail. Today's listener mail comes from Robert. Robert White. Robert writes, my wife is so afraid of me cheating on her, she won't let me out of her sight. She calls me constantly while I'm at work, and if I don't answer her calls, she calls even more. She also won't do anything on her own without me. I've never cheated on her or given her any reason to think that I would. I just don't get it. This leads to constant tension and fights. What should I do? Good question, Robert. Uh, it sounds to me like, if I try to think back, I, I probably told you all this last time, but I'm not actively practicing, so it's all rusty. Um, <laughs> but it reminds me of a, a kind of a classic pursuer withdrawal um, dynamic where um, as she feels less and less safe and she encroaches more and more, tries to get closer and closer, he pulls away more and more. Mm -hmm. um, and so it seems like one of the first steps might be in couples therapy, working with both of them, him on moving in and her on moving out a little bit and um, trying to um, maybe identify what are some cues or some triggers that make her feel unsafe and that the things that might lead to, um, you know, making her feel like she needs to pursue him and pursue him. But that's a pretty classic uh, relationship dynamic, isn't it? It, it is, man. Um, and it's like riding a bike for you. Um, <laughs> I'm anxious about this part. <laughs> pretty darn good. Um, you know, the only thing I would add to that is that um, I, I get versions of this story quite a bit or versions of this dynamic quite a bit in, uh, in couples therapy. And the response I often get is, you know, going back to, I've never cheated on her, so why am I under the scrutiny? And, and it kind of fits into the, I didn't put that, she's got baggage or he's got baggage and I didn't put it there. But the, the honest truth is that um, when you're in a relationship with someone, um, you're in a relationship with, my pastor used to say this, with the three-year-old me, the five-year-old me, the 10-year-old me, uh, being, especially like being cheated on, 
we tend to squeeze tighter to do everything we can to keep it from happening, which kind of like we described, tends to drive the other person away versus create that uh, security and comfort that we're really looking for. So, um, Robert, I hope that helps. Uh, you got some really good, uh, <laughs> got really good response from uh, from Alex. Uh, I think you could go back into the therapy room, Alex. <laughs> I, I may have to after this. I may have to. Awesome. Hope we helped you, Robert. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back with more Paradigm Insights into Relationships and You with Toby Jenkins. Uh, we're back. You're listening to Paradigm Insights into Relationships and You. I'm your host, Toby Jenkins. Today, I am honored to be joined by Alex Ellswick. And before the break, we were talking about myths with, uh, in terms of uh, recovery and addiction treatment. So 90% of people do not get treatment. Yeah. And so, but, you know, but, but, but it's people that you, we have to ask, who is the one classifying that these folks need treatment, right? Because it's like, it's a bunch of us professionals who are supposed to be the ones who know. But when you ask folks themselves, they're like, no, I don't need it. All I need is a job or all I need is to get a better housing situation. or All I need is some very obvious, basic human level resource that improves my quality of life that makes it such that I don't need drugs the same way. They're right. Yeah. That's so that. Yeah. So that's, so that's uh, rock bottom. Got to hit rock bottom. Then got to go to treatment. And then the last piece is after you get out of treatment, according to our story that we tell about addiction, you've got to be stone cold sober. You got to be abstinent. Yeah. And we we always say that addiction is chronic, progressive, and fatal. And that means that even people told me even while you're in treatment and you're abstinent and you're 30 days sober, your addiction is out there in the in the parking lot doing push-ups, getting stronger. Yeah. And, so true. Yes. And that's, and so, and there's some research from the National Institute of Drug Abuse and Nora Volkow, who's the director that would, that would suggest that, that, that there's truth to that, that, um, that, you know, addiction becomes progressive and gets worse and worse and worse. Um, the problem with that is there's also evidence that suggests that that's not true and it's important evidence. So for instance, uh, did you know that the majority of people who recover will recover by the age of 30? <laughs> something interesting happens about the age of 30. And if you think up to your brain research, your brain development, and think about when brains are fully developed, the latest research is telling us it's not until about 26. Hmm. So it makes sense to some extent. Now a person is working with full faculties. They have a full, fully developed prefrontal cortex, which is their stop system. And so it makes sense that sort of spontaneously about the age of 30, people would recover. Their addictions aren't getting progressively worse. Hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Makes a ton of sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it's, but it's not, but it's not traditional though. It's not traditional thought. Um, when most people would say, yeah, your addiction's getting worse and you have to be abstinent. So that's the point. If, if you believe that addiction is progressive, necessarily progressive and necessarily getting worse over time, then it makes sense that you would believe that people in recovery have to be totally abstinent because yeah. any drug use is necessarily pathological, problematic drug use. And so, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and that, that's one of the things you see from any of the 12 step uh, mm -hmm. recovery processes. Um, you know, you, you collect tokens for being abstinent um, from whatever the thing is, whether it's alcohol, sex, uh, heroin. And so, 
Um, and so that works for a certain, that works for some people. Um, yes. Selecting the tokens and being able to walk into a, a meeting or be able to say, and actually the people I know that have gone through 12 step, um, they can tell you at any given moment, how many days it's been <laughs> or how yes. many it's been. And so, yes. um, you know, the, the psychological effect of that is, is, is good uh, when it works. It yeah, really I love the you frame that. It works for some people. And that's true. I, I'll tell you the 12-step program helped me immensely in the beginning of my recovery. So mm -hmm. even as I can be critical or just kind of free thinking about some elements, there's no doubt it was really important to my recovery. And the yep. research shows roughly AA is effective. It ends up working for about a third of the people who walk into the room. Mm -hmm. So you have a third who walk in who probably won't really engage much. You'll, you'll have, and then they'll leave. You'll have a third who will engage, but it's not for them and they'll leave. And then you'll have a third who it works for. And it does. And it's, it, and it's, it's so valuable because there are like 65,000 AA meetings a week across the United States. Wow. And they're at like, like in Lexington, you could be at an AA meeting. You could, you could get 12 meetings in a day, you know, at any time. And, and they're free. So it's an incredibly valuable resource um, to kind of level the playing field. However, that's only one trajectory, only one pathway of recovery. As it turns out, other people get into recovery a lot of different ways. Um, somebody who's getting a lot of criticism right now in the public eye is, what is her name? Demi Lovato. Yeah. So she had uh, an overdose uh, maybe a, two, a year or two ago, uh, a heroin overdose that was very public. And um, she got into recovery, went to treatment. She has a treatment team. And now she is what someone has called, maybe she called, I'm not sure, someone called it California sober or sunshine sober. And what that means is she's using marijuana uh, and not anything else. She's abstaining from other substances, but she's using marijuana. And a lot of people in traditional recovery circles laugh at that and scoff at that and demean and belittle that and say, she's not actually in recovery, she's, um, on marijuana maintenance. There's all sorts of derogatory phrases we use, but the reality is the research shows that there are a lot of people like her, a lot of people who don't fit the traditional um, complete abstinence mold who use marijuana or alcohol without it becoming a problem in their lives. Yeah. Now, I, now I may be out of my depth here, but you don't hear about people overdosing on marijuana. Is that, am I off there? Yeah. No, you're exactly right. I, I, my understanding is that there is a toxic dose, but it's, it, it's like extraordinary. There's, you're not gonna be able to smoke your way to a toxic dose of marijuana. And I, I, I hear of people who, or, or either something's mixed with it that contaminates it and can have bad effect. But for the most part, from what I understand about just plain marijuana, um, and kind of, you know, probably me and talking about the differences between marijuana and alcohol. And um, at least from the data I've seen, marijuana is much safer than alcohol. You know, alcohol is legal. Uh, at least, well, marijuana is becoming legal. Um, but, you know, we can talk about that yeah. a little more later. So. Actually, New York, New York just legalized um, yesterday, I think, legalized recreational use. And yet we still have a federal ban on, on marijuana. And I... I don't know how to make sense of that. I don't think anyone can make sense of that. It's, it's illegal in the United States, but it is legal in New York and it is legal in all these other states. So we still have a problem. And oh, by the way, it's scheduled with 
the most harmful drug. So marijuana is schedule one substance, according to the FDA, which means it's as bad as heroin. Wow. What it means is it's a drug that has extreme potential for harm and no medicinal potential, which of course research has already shown is not true. So our drug policies are jacked up, Toby. Uh, yeah, yeah, I I agree in the criminalization of it. And when we talk about uh, a lot of these drugs have a racial history that have uh, kind of tainted public opinion about them, uh, which yeah. is also problematic. Uh, it, I, I had a thought that uh, ran, it crossed my mind really quickly. You know, uh, I know it was, um, and this might side, I know we want to talk about absence and um, drugs are bad, but um, you often also hear, and I don't know if this is one of the big myths, but uh, uh, is it myth that marijuana is a gateway drug to other things? Oh, that's a great question. That's a good one because it's, it is, it is, it's a perfect, because it is insofar. I mean, it's technically true. If all you mean is that most people who are using heroin or meth or a harder drug used marijuana first, if that's what you mean, then it's absolutely true. But that's also pretty obvious. I mean, it makes a lot of sense that somebody would, experiment with marijuana before shooting methamphetamine or something, right? Like that's a given. But if you're, if you're saying which drugs are people most likely to have used on their pathway to using something harder, it's certainly nicotine and alcohol. Mm. Certainly nicotine and alcohol, overwhelmingly. And I think, and, and even though nicotine, the interesting thing about nicotine is it's actually not that, not that physically harmful to your body. I mean, what really is harmful about cigarettes are all the additives and toxins. But yeah. nicotine is harmful to the brain in the sense that it, it acts, it's an addictive su substance. So it acts on your reward pathway and alters your brain chemistry in the same way that heroin would. And so, the, you know, you think about uh, a 15 year old sucking on a jewel uh, all day long, that actually can have a dramatically negative impact uh, on their brain and predisposing them for, for um, later addictions. And yet we're so concerned about marijuana they may have smoked twice in their life right like yeah uh, it, so in that sense it, it is myth yeah As i hear a lot i hear that a lot from parents in kind of the you know from a parenting standpoint the uh when it comes to talking about drugs and i think about that think about talking about drugs the same way i think about how parents uh, talk about sex and in our country at least at least from a therapy standpoint and just in my personal experience it's usually a fear-based conversation. So yeah. if you start using marijuana, you're just one step from uh, ODing or using harder drugs. And it's kind of been my experience that um, like for instance, um, some people know that, you know, marijuana just kind of, it works for me that I don't need to do heroin. Or I've even heard people say, you know, I don't like alcohol, but marijuana works for sure. me. And vice versa, and so, so that's kind of been my thinking on it too. That it's not necessarily a gateway, but uh, there's some other underlying things that perhaps need to be explored to get a more robust story around or, or make meaning out of what's going on. Um, we're up against a quick break here. Um, uh, my guest today is Alex Elswick, and we're talking uh, myths of addiction recovery and myths about drug use. Um, we'll be right back after this break.
Do you want to help positively transform schools? Then let me, Joel Cotty, keynote speaker and facilitator of the professional learning, Ignite, hashtag love in schools, put deep passion, purpose, and joy back into your classrooms, hallways, and school events. Share my contact information with a principal or district leader near you. My phone number is 859-967-8510 and find me on Twitter and Facebook at Ignite Love PD. Tune in next week. Alex and I will dive deeper into uh, current research and methods of treating addiction. And uh, we'll talk more about Voices of Hope and the recovery community he's created here in Central Kentucky. See you next week. Show.com. You can find archive shows and additional details about guests of the show at the show's website, www.paradigmradioshow.com. You can follow weekly one minute insight posts on the show's Instagram and Twitter feed at Paradigm Radio Show. For archived episodes, you can find episodes wherever you subscribe to podcasts Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Insights into Relationships and You is brought to you by Jenkins Professional Services and Hype Media Global. Thank you for tuning into Paradigm. Insights into Relationships and You with Toby Jenkins. Join us again 